Did you see the stylish kids in the riot? Shoveled up like mocks, said the night on fire, wombles bleed. Truncheons and shields, you know I cherish you, my love. Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 28th of May, and this is episode 111. 111. Sorry, we've got a fun show for you guys coming up. I am back from the Freeman Conference, and I have a whole bag of goodies with me. I've got in, I've got six interviews. You're not, you're not a drug mule. I'm not a drug mule, but I'm an interview mule. Yeah. Uh, I've come back across state lines and didn't declare all my interviews at, check, at the border check. Uh, but we've got six, so that'll be coming out over the next few shows. Today's going to be a good one, though. Um... <laughs> They're all good, but today's going to be a very interesting one uh, with Andes Guevara, who was my roommate at one of the conferences that I was attending, and he works at Sadiche, which is a free market think tank in Venezuela. Mm. So this guy is literally on the scene. Like he spends his days in Venezuela around what socialism has done to that country, and he's still campaigning for free markets in a country where you know you really. You wouldn't get away with campaigning too hard for free markets, to no, be honest. It's uh, so, pretty tough. Yeah, really inspirational guy. He's got a great story to tell. So, yeah, that's going to be talking a whole lot about what daily life is like inside Venezuela, what uh, uh, Jean Guaido, uh, the opposition leader, what the prospects are for him and how Venezuela can get back on the right track. We're also going to be talking to IPA research fellow Kurt Wallace, who was also at the Freedman Conference with me. Now, I was off interviewing people. Didn't really get a whole lot of chances to watch any of the panels, hear from any of the speakers that were there at Australia's, or no, the Southern Hemisphere's uh, biggest libertarian conference. Mm-hmm. Now, Kurt was at the session, so he's going to tell us about what some of the uh, takeaways were, who some of the best speakers were, and who some of the worst speakers were. Uh, yeah, so looking forward to that as well. He gave us his best on ground for the actual conference, but refused yep. to give us the off-field best on ground. <laughs> So I don't know why you're so obsessed with figuring out who got the drunkest at a libertarian if conference. If you're going to tune in for that and that alone, don't bother listening. <laughs> Do bother listening. Yeah, yeah, seriously, listen. Wait, stick, stick around. The rest <laughs> of the shows are okay. All right, uh, let's talk about some of the big stories in the world this week. And I think we should lead off with the EU elections, which yeah. is a pretty big story. Now, the Brexit party, they did pretty well, Pete. They unsurprisingly did well. Yeah, so they've only been around for a few weeks. Uh, This is the Brexit party headed by Nigel Farage, uh, the ones that were running for EU elections that were going to bring Brexit back to the people, that were going to capitalise off the fact that the Conservatives can't seem to do anything about it. The results are in. The Brexit party has claimed 28 of 64 seats in the European Parliament, mostly at the expense of the Conservative Party. Theresa May's party has gone from 15 MEP seats to a total of three. Now, my first question, Pete, is that good? Uh, in I, my limited uh, political experience, James, that's not good. Not good. Okay, so the uh, e, sorry, the Conservative Party finished in fifth place and is on course for its lowest vote share in a national election since they formed in 1834. Ouch, that's not that's a great bad. Report. That yeah. is very bad. Uh, interestingly, though, sorry, Brexit Party big winner, but when you hear the Conservatives did that badly, you think, oh, maybe Labor did pretty well. Labor Party also didn't. Aren't walking away with this one with their heads held high because they lost a lot of votes to the Liberal Democrats who have performed well. Everywhere as well. They play second, 21% of the vote, and they got 15 seats. Uh, and every region in England and Wales has elected one Brexit Party MEP. Now, when the results were coming in, I had one thought, I had one thought only, mm-hmm. which is how his friend of the show, Dan Hannon, going. Dan Hannon, being a member of the European Parliament, being a member with the Conservative Party, I want him back in there. Luckily, he's in. 
Well, two friends of the show have been elected MEPs. Oh, because Nigel Farage is also a friend of the show. We rub shoulders with some pretty powerful people, James. Well, we didn't rub shoulders with Nigel Farage. We had a uh, secondary shoulder rubber with Gideon yeah. Rosner. But, uh, yeah. yeah, friend Kidding. of the show. Friend of the show. Um, so, yeah, pretty stunning takeaway, Pete. Look, pretty amazing. It's no surprise that the major parties haven't done very well because even though I don't like polls, I like polls that I agree with and the yep. polls that I agree You've with... been been consistent on that. <laughs> There's one thing Peter Gregory likes. It's polls that uh, confirm biases. Yeah, exactly right. And they, they, those polls did confirm my bias and were, did actually turn out to be broadly correct. Uh, it's not a surprise. Um, great effort from Hannan, as you said. Pretty symbolic because, you know, as theoretically, Britney is still going to get out of the European Union. So, you know, hopefully a lot of these people don't actually have to do... Yeah, uh, that much work, but um, obviously a massive protest vote. Yeah, it's like it's almost as if if you don't have a uh, clear policy stance on Brexit, you're not going to do well in the European elections because the conservatives right. are trying to find any possible uh, you know compromise deal. None of them is working, so they lose everything to the Brexit Party, which you know it's in the damn name. We will deliver Brexit. Yeah, and then Labor lose all the ones, the Liberal Democrats, because they're caught between: do we back a second referendum or do we bring Brexit? Because a whole lot of Labor voters did vote to leave. That's right. And so when the Liberal Democrats are like, "We want remain," they get off that. That's right. Yeah, Liberal, Liberal Democrats, of course, did really well in this. Yeah. Um, look, I'm glad it happened. Sometimes politics, I've discovered in the last few months, is a bit like football. Oh, it, really? It can be good. They, they say that sometimes. It can be good. When you just watch, you know, sometimes it's good to watch a team you don't mind beat a team that you hate, even yeah. if your team's not winning. Yes. So that's my take. Well, I'm glad because <laughs> you're going to have to get used to that last part. Uh, anyway, let's talk about Europe as a whole. So, you know, the EU elections take place all over the EU member states and some pretty interesting returns as well. So b- basically for the for people that don't know a whole lot about EU uh, politics, I envy you. <laughs> I, I wish I didn't know as much, but... Uh, because, yeah, anyway, so the Grand Coalition of Centre-Right and Centre-Left in the European Parliament, they're going to lose their 40-year majority. So it was basically these two parties that were, you know, in cahoots together, just being <laughs> pretty pro-Europe. Official term. In cahoots, yeah. Uh, and they collectively lost over 80 seats. They lose a majority. Uh, in France, uh, Marine Le Pen's far-right National Party, uh, National Rally Party, they're prepared to take top spot in the country as well. Emmanuel Macron uh, has only, like, he comes second. So, you know, pretty concerning signs out of France about if you wanted to stay in the EU, then that's not looking too good either. In Germany, Angela Merkel's Christian Democrat Union, the centre-left Social Democratic Union, could be on course for their worst ever result at European elections, the Green Party being the big winners over there. So it's like, you know, it's, it's not exactly like Europe revolting against the EU, but it is... The centre, like the traditional power parties are going, like they're, they're hurting right now. Yes. So people on both sides are not happy with the status quo. You're either going further left or further right. Yeah, it's a continued thing that we've seen across the world, really. Yeah. Just uh, the revolt against political elites. Yeah, so the populism on both sides seems to be the takeaway. be interesting to see what unfolds. Indeed. All right. Uh, and one thing that has unfolded with it is the fall of Theresa May. That's so right. we go now to Peter Gregory with the story. <laughs> the completely unexpected resignation of Theresa May happened on, as Tory leader for the 7th of June, happened earlier this week. Her voice cracked as she spoke of the honour of serving the country that I love. I'll just summarise some of the mistakes she made as outlined by Tom Slater in Spiked. <laughs> Hey, um, the show's already a bit long. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she lost her majority in 2017 after calling the election. Um, she buckled to every EU and elite remainder demand. Brussels set the timetable for talks, ringing them in their own favour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes on and on and on. Look, I found the thing I liked about, the one thing I liked written about Theresa May, we put in hay a few, in it back in April by Theodore Dalrymple, 
He wrote in City Journal on um, that week that UK Prime Minister Theresa May was typical of the class that has gradually attained power in Britain. Unoriginal, vacillating, humorless, prey to the latest bad ideas, intellectually mediocre, believing in nothing very much, mistaking obstinacy for strength, timid, but nevertheless avid for power. So he didn't miss Theodore Delrymple in that I piece. object to humorless because I'm sure we all remember that interview where Theresa May said when she was a girl she used to run through farmers' crops, and if that's not hilarious, I don't know what is. Well, so, yeah. yeah, he's got that. He's clearly got I, that wrong. I really disagree with humorless. She sounds like an incredibly fun person to be around. I don't think that gets enough press. I mean, that for me is the worst of the lot. I would have resigned on the spot. They go. So if people don't know what this story is, so basically Theresa May's. Uh, being interviewed and it's like, look, you're, you've got, you were pretty, like, perfect in that kind of sense. Like, what's the worst thing about, like, what's the worst thing you've done? Mm. And you just think your standard answer is like, oh, you know, got kicked out of a few bars when I was in the early twenties. A few. <laughs> well, Pete's got a sorted past. Uh, and uh, Theresa May just comes out and says, when I was a schoolgirl, I used to run through farmers' crops, and they got pretty upset about that. Yeah, now, well, that is the richest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> like, Farmers' crops. Anyway, um, so, yeah, that's the end of Theresa May. That, like, you know, I kind of go, I don't like seeing people fail, but just, wowee. Like, imagine going in history as just the one thing, the, the one thing you were supposed to do, you didn't do it. You had three years to get Brexit done. You're the Brexit prime minister yeah. and you couldn't get it done. Like that, that's just your epitaph forever. Yeah, exactly. And she had this massive opportunity, as you say, for economic renewal and political renewal and yeah. she didn't take it because she never really wanted to leave. Like literally every history book that gets written about this era, anytime anyone learns about this era, it's going to be Theresa May who failed to deliver Brexit. Like mm. that's going to be the sentence. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah, it is pretty rough. And as uh, look, there's a lot of people that are going to have thrown their hat into the ring for the leadership. You think our leadership battles are bad? There's literally about twelve people here that it seems like have said that they'll go for it. So well, like until we've got twenty two, you're nothing on the Democratic Party over in the US. That's right. So, so keep going. Throw your hats in the ring. It'd be interesting. I don't know which one of them. I don't understand. Can't Han be later? Oh no, he's in the wrong. <laughs> he's not actually in the. But they should change the constitution so it can be. I don't yep. have a constitution. So, so how cool would that be things. if we had a friend of the show be? That uh, would be good. Of the UK. Imagine that. We demand I, an interview every week. I think Boris Johnson is pretty heavy favourite at the moment, but as we're recording, we don't know what it is. So you know, hopefully by next week's show, we can start discussing what all that's about. Uh, so I guess we'll bring it back to Australia for another leadership challenge. So the ALP. Bill Shorten has resigned as ALP leader after that loss, and it looks, well, it is going to be Anthony Albanese. No one yep. else has put their name forward. Um, pretty interesting. My theory has always been if Anthony Albanese was leading at the last election, game over. Like, Anthony Albanese would be prime minister right now had he already been leader. Really? So, what is that based on? Uh, just, like, my, <laughs> yeah, my overall theory being that every uh, election has come down to who would you rather share a beer with? And Anthony Albanese is number one in, an, in a heartbeat. <laughs> like Above Bill Shorten? Uh, above Bill Shorten and above Scott Morrison, I would say. He used to have those segments on Sun, what was it, Sunrise, where he's pretty funny? Uh, I uh, he didn't watch. pretty funny. Didn't watch. Anyway, uh, so Anthony Albanese, the new leader, comes from the Labor left faction, which is going to be interesting because, you know, the main takeaway from that election being Labor went a bit too left. So wow. now that uh, Anthony Albanese's in there, it's going to be interesting stuff. They're dominated by hardcore capitalists, the Labor Party. So yeah, now- if there's one thing, they were too big on <laughs> um, uh, traditional energy sources. Thank too you. big. They can swing back to their traditional heartland. Yeah, so going to be very, very interesting. There's been a lot of uh, 
So basically, Richard Miles, who looks like he's going to become new deputy leader, was speaking to 3AW yesterday and he says, like, they need to connect with their base, being people who put on overalls, go to work, get dirty, come home. They know what uh, they want, they need them to know that Labor is their party. So that does sound like they're going to, you know, go a bit more right wing. Yeah, look, I sort of got this comment here that, you know, if you look at the establishment after they've copped, you know, a defeat in the US and the UK and now in the EU, We've complained on this show about how slow they've been to respond to that and to to actually maybe reconnect with their traditional heartland. But that statement, you just read out in the statement that Albanese made as well, which I won't bother reading through, but it suggests that maybe they are going to go for that reconnection with their traditional voters. And it would be great if Australia could lead the world in that regard. Yeah, Richard Miles has also asked in this um, interview, uh, he regretted previously saying the collapse of the global market for thermal coal was, quote, at one level, a good thing. <laughs> he yeah. says, the comments I made earlier this year were tone deaf. Which I didn't think until the election, but now I'm quite clear. That but at it was least tone deaf. At least he's admitting that. At least he is admitting that. At least that. he's so, not saying that everyone who voted for Skomo is a racist idiot. Yes, uh, that's a good one. And you know, I'll point out, like Pete and I don't like at the end of the day, Labour or Liberal isn't the biggest thing, as long mm. as like whichever party is in power is delivering good policies, that's like right. affordable energy and stuff like that. Absolutely. So uh, you know, it's not a whole lot of like, look at Labor, look how they suck. It's more just like, hey, maybe you guys can start thinking of good policies and then we're not in this issue. That's right. All right. Uh, some people that aren't thinking of good policies, babe, is uh, the die-in. <laughs> the die-in, yeah. yeah. I won't say what... Sit-ins, oh. <laughs> sit-ins don't push the needle anymore. You need to die-in. You need to die-in. I won't say the first thing that came into my head because it's not appropriate, but more than a thousand people have marked... Save it for off yeah. I want to hear what that was. Okay. More than a 1,000 people have marched through Melbourne CBD last weekend and staged a die-in for climate change. The protest started with speeches at Victorian Parliament, then marches moved through the city to the corner of Burke Street and Swanson Street, where they had their die-in. Uh, one of the protest organisers, Extinction, Re- Extinction Rebellion Victoria, who are the mob from the UK, called for governments to set up a, and this sounds like a, an absolute, uh, what's the word? Riot. Um, Citizens' Assembly on Climate and Ecological Justice to Lead Environmental Party uh, Policy. Where do I sign up? How much money do I have to pay you to sit at that whole session? Oh, I'd go for free, mate. That that sounds like an absolute, you know, a great time. and a holler. I can't think of the thing I'm trying to say. Anyway... uh, this, this spokesperson for, for Extinction, Extinction Rebellion said, it's kind of a snapback rally in response to our feelings about the election. We organised it within a week and we're really impressed with the turnout, he said. So, doubling down. Yeah, the one thing I think about when I hear stuff about, like this protest, where it says like it started with speeches and then people got to walk to the die-in. Yeah. I've never been to a protest. What do you reckon the speeches are like? Like, are people receptive or are they just going, can we can we skip past this part? Well, like, we all agree with you. I've, we know what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to protests at, um, or like sort of observed protests at uni. Yeah. And it's a lot of yelling and then just like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the speeches the, are The okay. protest, like the speeches go down okay? Well, I mean, like, depends what, I mean, Martin Luther King at the Lincoln Memorial was pretty Yeah, good. but that's not exactly a protest. It that's was more, definitely a protest. Well, yeah, but like, you know, not in this traditional sense of like, it's not like this die-in where everyone's like, can we just go to the part where we get to lie down in the middle of the street and take selfies? That's right. Look, maybe... And maybe. I want to call, like, I'm not, like, equivalising Martin Luther King <laughs> with a bloke with a <laughs> crumpled up A4 sheet of paper <laughs> on Victorian Parliament. Mate, we're going to be extinct soon. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, history will prove <laughs> how good this guy is. So you're saying... But until then, he's no Martin Luther King. So you're saying people were going, come on, mate, let's yeah, get to let's, the dine. Yeah, you know. I, I just, like, if I'm in a protest and I see the next speaker you know, fumble through at least three different A4 sheets. I'm yep. just going, geez, this is going to be rough. Come on, let's get to the dine. No, yeah, so, it's, and it's like the 21st salute that goes on a bit too long. It's, I'd rather go back and drink. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can see how you mean. Uh, so, um, but I mean, the thing about this is it's like, we're not going to change our tactics, yep. which are clearly on the nose with the general public. We're going to, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have another protest. Yes. But I want to talk to about, I want to talk about a protest in Queensland, oh. in Rockhampton, more than 100 people gathered, according okay. to the ABC, so it's probably more than that, uh, for a day of action demanding the Galilee the Basin. Mainstream media. <laughs> it's a bloody conspiracy. Uh, gathered for a day of action demanding the Galilee Basin be opened up to mining to create jobs. That was way down the page after the story about the dying, but equally as important. So there's that. Well, yeah, so that was, uh, you know, basically pro-mine, pro-Dani, and Dani does seem to, like, you know, we're looking like we're in the final stages. You yeah. never quite know, but it does seem to be. So Adani's latest environmental approvals are set to be finalised within three weeks after the Queensland Premier called for the process to be resolved. Yeah, it, so if given the green light after this, Adani could begin gr- breaking ground at Carmichael's site within weeks after more than eight years of planning. You know, there's basically been the whole thing about the black-throated finch and, you know, what, what things can be done to protect that species. Yeah. Uh, and that's been holding up the mind. So it does seem to be... Uh, on the verge of being passed. Now, Pete, so Anastasia Palaszczuk, Queensland Prime Minister, mm-hmm. uh, Queensland Premier, mm-hmm. uh, has always been, you know, basically okay with the holdups to Adani. Now, what could possibly have happened recently, do you think, that would have made her go, this needs to be resolved right now? I can't think of a single thing that's changed in the last few yeah, weeks. But w- she does seem to have changed her mind for some reason. And it's an unbelievable turn of events. It's certainly not the election because no politician has ever... Um, sold, out their, <laughs> sold out their previous views for electoral gain. They've got no sense of self-preservation, politicians. Yep. So She was fed up, apparently, it. with the ongoing delays. Oh. Just something about it was like, we need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. All right, uh, so that is good news because, uh, yeah, like Australia's got some of the highest energy costs in the entire world, which is wild considering all of the resources that we're sitting on. So hopefully once this mine gets underway, we can have more people be able to afford energy a bit earlier. And uh, people in India that don't have electricity at all. Indeed, that we need to definitely think about that because, you know, like that's a country that desperately needs electricity. What's your plan? What is your plan? All right, uh, sorry, go over to ipa.org.au if uh, there's a whole lot of other stuff you can read other than me and Pete. So you've got John Roscombe in the Australian Financial Review giving his post-election analysis talking about the five ways that Morrison can put aspiration into practice. Basically, his idea is, look, the Liberals are apparently very good at politics. They're not so good at policy, which, well. uh, you know, is something that we've observed time and time again over the last six years. But they've got the new three-year lease and uh, they have been given a pretty clear sign by the electorate. They do want some of these policies put in action. So Don is talking about how they can do that. Uh, You've also got Evan Mulholland in The Spectator Australia. You've got last week's Looking Forward podcast. Head on over and download all of those and read them and listen to them with the Looking Forward podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on any of the platforms that you uh, currently subscribe to. Make sure you're telling your friends and family about it as you tell them about this show. So, uh, you know, get the word out. Best way to grow a show is through word of mouth. So, you know, if you are listening, if you are enjoying what Pete and I talk about, uh, go out and tell people. Even if you're not enjoying it, even if you're just not disgusted. I don't think anyone could possibly not enjoy what we talk about. Uh, So I don't even want to engage with that idea. Anyway, uh. Keep talking to people about it. Uh, if you are listening through iTunes, make sure you leave us that five-star review. It really helps us out in the rankings. You can also leave a comment for the show, maybe a tip or whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, keep doing that. And if you are not a member of the IPA and you do want to support our work, maybe you hear from Kurt Wallace later in the show, you want to give that guy uh, some help. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kurt, no, no. Specifically. Kurt specifically no 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 but uh, like the IPA does a whole lot of cool things talk, uh, uh, so uh, make sure you're signing up as a member we've got three different membership packages go to ipa.org.au slash join you can join uh, yeah 
and become a part of Australia's community for freedom. And if you are already a member and you, there's also the option to donate some money. So you can go do that as well. All right. So we've got Andres Guevara from Sediche in Venezuela. Awesome interview out of the, I will say the loudest hotel room in the planet. Good hotel. Thank you to Atlas for booking it. But man, oh man, was like, I don't know what it was, but the second we started recording, Sydney just lit up outside our hotel room. So if there is some background traffic, I do apologize. Uh, but you can definitely hear what Andres says because, uh, Really interesting guy, really interesting situation. So we got that, and then we got Kurt Wallace. Cool. Okay, we are now joined by my roommate here at an Atlas conference. Hopefully this goes out. This is my first time using a portable podcast equipment. So, you know, look, we're all hoping for the best here. But so I'm joined now by Andres Guevara, who works at uh, Sediche down in Venezuela. So this is going to be really cool because you have a lot of listeners here, obviously a lot of listeners from Australia, who have absolutely no idea what life is like in, like in Venezuela and the work that you guys do. So first off, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Well, thank you a lot, James. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to share my experience in my country with you and your audience. Yeah, excellent. And we're also experiencing, uh, we're sharing a room here at this conference. We've got the two beds set up. It's quite the nice uh, hotel room. So first off, what are your thoughts on sharing the hotel room? Well, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, I, I never realized that the first time that I, I was going to be here in Australia, I, I was going to share the room with a local guy from Melbourne. So it's very, I mean, uh, in, interesting because thanks to you, I have learned a lot of uh, what is your culture, the difference, I mean, on your cities and the Australian culture. That is very, at, at first sight, it, it seems to be very complex with a lot of heritage and historical values. So... I mean, it's not like uh, everyone has this opportunity to be here and to share this kind of, of experience with you guys. Yeah, so, well, there's like this, the life in Australia here, and then there's also life in Venezuela. So you were telling me a lot about life in Venezuela last night, which was just incredible to think about. So, uh, and I said, it's just so hard for an Australian to put themselves in your shoes. Stuff like you were telling me, like, so much of the country is now controlled by rebels. So it's so hard to... Uh, even tax people in Venezuela because no one uses a national currency. So what is daily life like in Venezuela? Like, how would you describe it? Well, that's a very good question because uh, when you come from a functional country, uh, you may think that what is happening in Venezuela is like a science fiction history. And as a matter of fact, it's not. Uh, uh, regretfully, what is happening in Venezuela is that the evidence that socialism doesn't work and doesn't work at all. And of course, uh, when you try to plan all the life of individuals uh, in every aspect of your life, I mean, it's not like you're going to raise one tax and that's it, no. When you try to plan as a whole by the state and from the state, the individual life, then you realize that your country become totally dysfunctional. And this is very important because uh, when you try to summarize what is happening in Venezuela, yes, I can tell you about the rebels that are controlling the south part of the country and they are like uh, only worried about the purchase, the purchase and sale of gold, of the blue gold, Coltan, uh, about, I mean, the, the, the fact that no longer the security forces are capable uh, control this part of the territory. But at the same time, I have to tell you about the crisis that we're facing regarding uh, health conditions, about the economical situation, about the immigrants that are flowing, uh, they are flowing away, away the country, uh, not only to South America, that is, uh, is perhaps the most uh, popular destination, but also to Europe and even in Australia. 
Australia, you had uh, an important community of Venezuelans that are flowing, uh, that are running away the country. So yes, and I mean, summarizing all these issues is not easy, but the truth is that what you see in news, I mean, is only a small portion of the reality because um, due to censorship, due to persecution and a lot of conditions that even foreign journalists are facing, it's very complex to describe what is happening in Venezuela nowadays at present time. Yeah, so I want to get into the work that Sadiche uh, is doing and maybe some of the work that other journalists are doing as well. But um, you were telling me last night how hyperinflation has got to the point where just no one even uses the local currency anymore, which just in, in turn just brings the whole country to its knees. You can't get taxes, the government can't get funding for anything. Yes, it's ironic. I mean this because I know that many people here, we are at the Atlas Network and at the World Taxpayer Association, like fighting and advocating against you know the payment of of taxes, but it seems to be very, very logical and, and reasonable if you take into consideration that taxation, I mean, even the constitutional right of taxation without representation is a very important standpoint in many cultures of the Western Hemisphere and and into certain countries that defend the state, uh, the existence of the rule of law. However, because of the specific situation that Venezuela is facing at present time, uh, we must mention that uh, we are facing the most high uh, hyperinflation of recent times of Western history, and perhaps it's one of the biggest of all time, if, if it's not the biggest of, of the modern times. So what is happening, or one of the conditions that these generate is that uh, the Venezuelan Bolivar, that is the local tender currency that we had in our country, that we have, I'm sorry, is no longer being used by Venezuelans and citizens that are being living in the country, because uh, it, it, it doesn't have any use. I mean, you have to use it because to certain payments or obligations that the state obeys. But from a practical standpoint, most commerce, merchants, entrepreneurs uh, employ American dollars or foreign currency as the Colombian peso in the boundaries between Colombia and Venezuela, specifically in the zone of the Táchira state, Zulia state, and I mean all the states that are next to Colombia. But the Colombian peso and the United States dollar, uh, they swift the use of the Venezuelan notes. And this is a very funny issue because I was mentioning to many people that is interested on in the Venezuelan situation that uh, even the one bill note is not being accepted in the state of Zulia because it's no long, it, it no longer provides value for Venezuelans because the price, the settlement of prices of goods and services within the country is being also uh, modified in the foreign currency because of the instability of the monetary policy within our, our, our country. So given this complexity, then you are not longer able to get to the tax administration and declare the taxes that you must uh, pay this is, of course, the two main taxes. That is the uh, 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 the income tax and the IVA. That is the add tax value, uh, the bad BAT, uh, the value add tax, right? So we are no longer declaring taxes, and of course, the income of the government has lowered and has been substantially affected because of this and because of the sanctions that the government of the United States has enacted against the, our state-run company PDVSA. So we, I know that it's a complex matter, but in summary, yes, I mean, we are no longer able to pay taxes because, I mean, from a practical standpoint, 
the collection of taxes by the government is no longer uh, a, a possibility because people are no longer using Venezuelan bolivars. This is a wild thing for me, is that you talk about the health crisis, the money crisis, the, go the government can't do anything, but Venezuela wasn't even invaded. This isn't like a country that should have failed, and so many of your bordering countries are quite rich. This is a country completely undone by socialism and by its own government. Yes, and if you want to quote me on this, please feel free, but... That is, so yeah, the microphone is here. No, I no, want to no. quote you. Yes, no, 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 but listen to this. I mean, socialism is more powerful to destroy than a nuclear weapon, right? I mean, this is very important because, as you mentioned, uh, we, don't, we are not facing any kind of war here, and we don't have, like, a rebels against someone in the country. I mean, of course, that we have... Uh, people that is like controlling territories, but it's not like they're trying to uh, withdraw the government by force. I mean, they are controlling the territory because organized crime, I mean, is, is in control and in charge of certain aspects of the daily lives of many people. And since the government is not capable to set force, I mean, they have the control of the territory. But this is not like you're facing an invasion, a military intervention of a foreign superpower. No, it's just the collapse of a nation that has enacted and make, came into force uh, a lot of policies that are based on the central planning of the economy. So that's the reason why I believe that, I mean, the, this kind of policies, socialism, is more destructive than a nuclear weapon. Because, I mean, you, there is no one single aspect of human life in Venezuela that may have not been affected because of the policies that we are facing. And this is crucial to understand. Because I mentioned you health, education, but there is, there is also, for, for instance, the ultimate crisis that we faced on March of this year regarding electricity and supply powers of energy. And there are cities in Venezuela that only have three hours a day um, electricity. So this is, for for instance, the case of Maracaibo, that is Venezuelan second city. I mean, it's like the Melbourne of uh, of Australia or something like that. So you can realize the importance of 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 what is happening. Maracaibo is one of the state oil run and most most important cities in our in our country. And since we don't have enough electricity to process oil and turn it into gasoline and, and gas oil, I mean, we're no longer able to have enough gasoline in the country. So the country is running out of gasoline and it's running out of oil. And it's, uh, it's ironic because Venezuela is well known as a petroleum and an oil and, and gas producer. But because of the, of the nature of the system that is within us governing all the system, I mean, all, all the structure, we are no longer able to produce the mains of what we have been, uh, of, of, of our essence in the economy. So we are talking about a tradition that many years ago, uh, Venezuela was like a, one of the main top producers of oil and gas in, in the nation and, uh, and the worldwide, worldwide. So right now it's not no longer like that. So, I mean, if you don't have a gas, if you don't have electricity, if you don't have power, I mean, life becomes very difficult to understand because you lack of meaning.
Yeah, absolutely. One thing that did come up at the start of this year was the rise of uh, Juan Guaido. Am I pronouncing that right? Well, it's Guaido. Guaido. It's like, you know, Hermione in Harry Potter that says Leviosa, no Leviosa. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, I will take the comparison to Hermione Potter. Uh, Anyway, so uh, his rise was quite interesting for the world. It was like, okay, this is someone that could possibly take down Maduro. This is possibly someone that can bring Venezuela up. What's the view of Venezuelans towards him? Well... This is another complex um, question because for, for many of us, Juan Guaido represents the legitimate power and of, of the executive branch right now because of the specific situation that the country is facing. Juan Guaido, uh, he is a very young leader. He is arising from the Social Democrat uh, Party, Voluntad Popular, and he is deemed for, uh, for the free world as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Guaido uh, right now is very complex, the, the, the role that he has to face, because more than a president that can at, at this moment like execute public policy t- to uh, transform the country, he has to lead a transition, or, or at least this is his mission. And it's not a complex one. I mean, it's not a, an easy one, because uh, there are many issues that you must take into consideration in order to obtain a successful transition in Venezuela. Many attempts have been made since the beginning of this year regarding this issue. However, as we already, as of the time that we are holding this interview, regretfully, we can, we, Maduro remains in power as a de facto ruler, but he remains there. And of course, the challenge that we had right now, Juan Guaido has, is to face that transition. Is Juan Guaido a guy that believes in free markets, that he, uh, that he believes in the rule of law and the enforcement of a limited government? Right now, I mean, it's difficult to tell, but I will assure you that he's leading to democracy. And in Venezuela, in the context of the Venezuelan situation, a leader that is like uh, envisioning or aspiring to get back to democracy is a winner because of course, free markets are important. Rule of law is uh, a cornerstone for development and for civilization. But at the same time, uh, in the conditions that Venezuela is facing with this de facto ruling of the, all the situation that I have described, a guy that is trying to get back to democracy, uh, it should be taken as a positive guy. Uh, for the future, Guaido may, or Guaido or the next president may try to Im- improve or improve and to employ free market solutions for the country. It is possible, yes. Why? Because due to the reality that we are facing, it is obvious that only a free market uh, policies and only free market solutions uh, will bring back prosperity to Venezuela. Venezuela has many uh, challenges regarding its economical situation. Because first, there is the inflation subject. But this is not only the inflation subject. You have to uh, regain production. You have many undercapitalized uh, or subcapitalized ent- uh, companies that ne- need to get back to work. And they need like foreign investment. You have to restructure your debt. Right now, the debt in Venezuela, the foreign debt in bonds, in accounts payable, uh, the PDVSA uh, accounts payable, the PDVSA bonds, the sovereign bonds, is up to $180 billion. So this is a debt that has to be restructured. 
And there is like a general agreement or a covenant, uh, a, a general agreement that this debt has to be restructured and Plan País, that is like the guide or the roadmap that the position is trying to employ when, when effectively it gains again the control of the democratic government, it recognizes the, import the importance of private property, rule of law, and of course free market as a cornerstone towards development. So in the medium and long term, I believe that it is possible that Venezuela may May, and I, I, I would like to underline the word may, because nothing is for sure in our country, may get back to the economic development. And you can talk in a few years about the miracle in Venezuela, such as in the past you have been talking about the Chilean miracle or the German miracle, because it is possible from an, uh, an historical point of view, I mean, it has the potential. Venezuela was one of the wealthiest countries only about five decades ago, so it's not impossible to think again against that. I mean, it, it can become once again a, a beautiful and a wealthy country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about the work of Sadiqa, which is the organization you work for. Now, uh, you're a free market think tank in Venezuela, which is not a country where it's safe to be a free market think tank, I would say. Like, it, so what is the work you do and how do you go about doing it without getting arrested? Well, that's a very good question because many people try is worried of our safety. Mm. Of course, each time that you try to express yourself in Venezuela freely, you are risking yourself. Most in late in the latest day because uh, it's not like a, you live in a free country and the re the regime of Maduro is like a, they don't care about anything. Uh, because the main purpose of them is to remain in power, regardless of the means in order to obtain that goal. So, Cedice, uh, we are conscious of this, and we're trying to promote the battle of ideas. And always, don't, uh, do not attack direct, uh, we try to not, to not attack directly the regime of Maduro because the consequences are obvious, I mean, but instead we try to defend like principles, general principles that we, we believe that surpass the mere fact of Maduro's regime. So basically right now, of course, there's also the, the, the issue of the resources. What we try is to provide academic and scholar support to youngsters in universities, college, and in the communities. So it's more like a, a, a work that is oriented to grassroots, to communities, to that kind of, of of people that is not directly like politic ex politically ex exposed. So this, to a certain degree, diminish and reduce the, uh, the possible impact against the regime. Because we are not fighting an individual. I mean, it's not like say, this is actively blaming against Maduro or blaming against the Venezuelan government, but it's blaming against socialism. And, and this is very, very logical if you see it from uh, the commitment of Sedice, because Sedice was founded in 1984, so it has more than 35 of years of existence. So when you, took a, when you take a look of uh, the whole uh, existence of the, of the institution, you see that you are not only fighting socialism from Maduro and Chavez. Uh, instead, you are fighting the interventionism of the state many decades ago, because this problem is not new. Of course, it has been more bold and more 
difficult in the times of recent in the recent times, but I mean the the goal of the institution is to fight socialism, not only with this regime but in the future, because you, we have to be aware that if we don't fight socialism as an idea, uh, then the, the, there is always the possibility that in the future a new leader may arise and start like spreading the word of socialism once again. So this is something that perhaps has uh, protect us from more uh, uh, yes, persecution of the government. Well, you may ask, Sirisa has been facing uh, uh, some kind of persecution or uh, uh, in the past of the government? Of course, there are certain areas, for instance, advertising or that kind of things that in the past has been chased by the government and some agencies has ordered us you know, to, to ban some commercials that we make many years ago regarding private property and the defense of private property. But right now we are like uh, uh, more in the, in the institutional defense of liberty against socialism. So we have to obviously be cautious and be conscious, be, be conscious of the dangers that work in Venezuela implies. So we try to be like a very conservative when we try to make a statement or when we try to represent the institution. Uh, one thing around the world at the moment is the return of socialism as uh, a popular thing for young people. We're seeing especially the rise of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over in the US. In Australia, I think a recent poll that the IPA put together uh, showed that socialism is an increasingly popular thing among young people. Now, obviously, there's still a lot of people out there who are young and believe in free markets, but socialism is coming back. So. Uh, yeah, and I guess like one thing that socialism does say is, oh, don't don't pay attention to Venezuela. That's not real socialism. Uh, that's just this, you know, outlier case. We can do better. So, what would you say to people that think like that? Well, the, the that's another thing that constantly uh, arises because we, when people say that Venezuela is not true socialism, that was exactly the same thing that we said when we when people told us that we are like Cuba. And we said to the people, no, because Cuba is not a true socialism. The true socialism is what I'm going to build with this program. And then, well, you're seeing the consequences of what is happening in Venezuela. So there are always like people trying to chase the, the true socialism. It's like uh, they're trying to, to hunt a treasure that never appears because it's like an... I don't, I'm, I don't want to call like an ideal or idealistic point of view to make politics, but politics has to be made on earth. So, I mean, by the same token, I always uh, try to warn my fellow libertarians of the world that you must take uh, the politics with the foot on earth. I mean, because it's like, uh, if you don't take this into consideration regretfully, you are taking the risk to stay, you know, in the sky uh, with ideas and not take politics to ground. Uh, I'm very sad when I see people of the free world claiming for socialism. For instance, when I come here to Australia or I come, I have been in the States and in the past, uh, I, I realize that you have many things that I don't have any longer. I'm talking about rice, I'm talking about milk. I mean, even today when I ate my breakfast, I was like very happy because there are many products that I no longer see in my country 
that I was like, whoa, I was ashamed of myself, you know, because it's like uh, your human dignity is being like lowered because you are no longer able to uh, get access to the things in your daily life. So it's like, um, I, it's like I am like Cinderella. You know, I'm here in a free country where I can like uh, walk freely and eat whatever I want. And this is something that you don't realize and you take for granted because you have it. And one, uh, Thomas Jefferson once said that the price of liberty is eternal surveillance or billi you have to be a vigilante of, of liberty. And I, I love this quote of Jefferson because it may sound stupid right now because you have it, but once you lose it, when, when, once your, your rights are taken out, it's very hard to, to obtain it back, to get, to, get it, to get them back. So it's very complex because I'm, I'm, when you talk of this in Australia or in the United States, you're talking about an, a hypothetical a scenario, and a scenario that is in laboratory, you know? It's not like uh, you're watching this day by day in your daily lives. But me, myself, my family, I mean, and this, the history of my life, I have witnesses, people, very close friends that die because of lack of medicines. I mean, so, I mean, taking this to my personal life, I can tell you at first sight that it's not a history of science fiction, it's true. So be careful with the things that you wish, because one, I mean, of course, that you want more justice, you want more like opportunities and all this is very, it's perfectly understandable, but you have to be very careful on how you obtain that kind of justice and that kind of redistribution of, of wealth, as well as the opportunities that you're looking for. Because from a practical standpoint, socialist policies tend to be not the better way to obtain these things that you're claiming. Instead, look how with liberty and from liberty you can obtain these kind of things that you're looking for. Because uh, on a daily basis, I mean, when you, when you apply socialism, believe me, it's not that Venezuelans are special. It's not that Cubans were special. It's not that Russian or the Soviet Union were special. It's a proven fact that you are going to bring misery to a beautiful country, and I am sure that you guys from Australia, you have a beautiful country. You don't want to be facing misery, pro poverty, and all these kind of things that my country is facing right now. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners right now who would really like to help out Sadiche or at least follow what you guys are doing. So where, where can people get involved? Well, yes, of course. Uh, most of our work is in Spanish, but of course, if you want to get close to us, I mean, so this is a well-known thing, thank, well, well-known, I, I, I want to, to believe that it's like that. In Venezuela, we have a Twitter account that is arroba uh, sedice, that is C-E-D-I-C-E. -E. Uh, as well, we have uh, our account in Instagram, that is, uh, well, C-E-D-I-C-E-B-E. Because it's Cedice Venezuela, so the latest part is BE, as well as Facebook, it has the same account. We have the web, the web page that is www.cedice.org.be, and then you will find a lot of the information and the projects that we are ongoing. Re remember that we have a lot of programs. I mean, describing all, it will be very ambitious at this moment. But at the same time, you can contact us if you want to, to give us, I mean, not only money, because money is always welcome, but also, I mean, support or engagement, because we had a lot of experience regarding the management of crisis. And I mean, 
managing a think tank in a country like Venezuela right now is a very complex issue. So uh, because of that, precisely, we can bring you our know-how, our management of human resources and capital to uh, another circumstance. We could gladly do, do that. And regarding the funding, because of the, 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 the situation is more complex, uh, we, we will prefer to uh, direct peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, provide information regarding that subject, because uh, financing on foreign currency to NGOs in Venezuela, and CEDIS is an NGO, I mean, in the legal structure, is a little bit complex, and that will, I will further elaborate if anyone wants to to donate or to help us because, I mean, of course that donations are welcome, but it's a complex matter to disclose it in the podcast right now. Right, all right, all right. Uh, so Andres, uh, thanks so much, That's, that was awesome. I mean, like like I said last night, I am never going to be able to put myself in your shoes. I just don't know what it's like to live in a country like that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's good to know that there are prospects for change and hopefully Venezuela can start to get back on its feet again. So thanks so much for coming on the show and that was really illuminating. Well, thank you. Thank you, James, because, I mean, to take the time and to understand and to know about what is happening in the country, uh, for us, is very, very, not only lawful, but, I'll, I mean, I'm very grateful because of this, I mean, uh, the opportunity to share what is happening in the country, to let people of Australia know, and most of all, to give it, to understand Venezuela as a lesson is, is great because I, I care about the freedom, not only of my country, but of the world as a, as a whole. Okay, we're now joined once again by IPA Research Fellow Kurt Wallace. Uh, this is a good meeting of the Hay team, so if you are subscribed mm -hmm. to Hey, What Did I Miss? These are the three people that will send it out to you. So, Kurt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, so you were with me and a few other IPA staff members at the Freedman Conference over the weekend. This is, uh, if people are new to the show and they don't really know what the Freedman Conference is, it's basically Australia's biggest uh, libertarian conference, biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, I think they were saying this year. Uh, and there was a whole lot of great speakers. Now, I was, uh, as we've discussed earlier in the show, I was doing a whole lot of interviews, so I didn't get a whole chance to sit on any of the panels. And I know there's going to be a lot of listeners out there who want to know what people were thinking about at this conference. So mm. we've got Kurt here with us. So, Kurt, what, first off, you were in your own panel. Yep. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, what that was about and what the experience was? Because I know there was a big celebrity with you. Yeah, so I was on the, the panel on labour markets uh, and unions and, and work. And I was... Speaking on the UBI proposal, so that's universal basic income, uh, basically a no-strings-attached welfare payment to everybody. Sounds um, good. <laughs> yeah, so I was uh, talking about that and uh, the living wage concept uh, and speaking about the philosophical underpinnings of those two policy ideas. So I was talking about the idea of positive rights and inequality, uh, a lot of things on the left, yeah. uh, particularly that... Uh, uh, argued for those two policies and then um yeah and i was on the panel with um, well actually just on that so let's discuss ubi because it's yep. a pretty interesting area and we had andrew yang who's a democratic party nominee calling for it as well it seems to be getting a whole lot of groundswell so what is the ubi if people don't know and then what's your take on it yeah so there are a number of uh, the democratic uh field very wide field a number of them are putting forth the ubi as a as a way of um well there's a few different ways of uh, proposing it. So on the left, there's been a number of rights-based cases saying that you know everyone deserves um, a basic standard of living, so they should be provided this uh, lump welfare payment direct from the government. Uh, there has been also like a libertarian case saying that we can sort of replace the existing welfare system and reduce 
bureaucratic waste. Um, but uh, Andrew Yang's a um, one of the candidates in the Democratic race who's sort of proposing it as a way of adjusting to increases in AI uh, that will, you know, take people's jobs and make some people unable to uh, to earn a wage, according to according to, to his view. So the idea is that you'd have this, um, you know, some lump payment uh, from the government that you know it provides a base for you to to live off, and then yeah, but it's there's there's very vague uh, proposals put forward, so it's very difficult to sort of just uh, you know nail down the problems with proposals when the people putting it forward are very vague on the details. Yeah, because a whole lot of people do talk about the growing automation of the industries, but it does seem to be like there's always been automation, there's always been industries that aren't relevant anymore, and we just find new industries to put people into. Well, exactly. If you, if you look back, like there's been very radical changes in um, technology and industrialization, and we've managed to, to cope uh, in the past. And I think there's a good argument to say that we will, in the future as well, people will move into uh, areas where they're mo- more productive and ultimately will benefit from um, improvement in technology. So you're on a panel with Sir Richard, Sir, sorry, Sir Roger Douglas, a uh, famous New Zealander. Was that a thrill? Why don't you explain what he did and, and how that was? Yeah, so that was really good. Um, so he was on the panel and also he had a his own keynote um, that I went to. So he's a, um, a famous politician in in New Zealand. He was part of the um, he was the finance minister in the 1980s for the Labor government that enacted a number of key market reforms as part of sort of the global uh, in the Anglosphere this sort of move towards free markets under Thatcher and Reagan. Um, so he was a um, yeah really important guy in the Labor government in the 80s that um, removed a number of subsidies, um, floated the, um, the currency, um, enacted a number of key market reforms that ultimately um, spurred on and influenced um, people in Australia as well. Do you think you'll be a sir one day? Uh, to say yes or no? <laughs> no. Okay. Oh, all right. That's a bit negative thinking if you ask me. Uh, so let's talk about some of the other panels that were there. So there was the IPA's first live podcast, which was one of the sessions. Uh, they've yet to ask me and Pete go live. Mm. I don't know quite why. I can't understand why. Yeah, um, I think it's something to do with unprofessionalism, but we'll get into that later. Uh, we're not going to have you justify why that was. But anyway, so the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. Go out and subscribe if you haven't already, but they did a live recording. It's going to be coming out in the next few days. So uh, how did you find that? Because that was about the future of freedom. Like what's freedom going to look like? in 2050 what are the debates we're going to be having yeah so it was really interesting um you know had a good live audience in uh had renee gorman uh, and chris berg uh john roshkam and um scott hargrave so i uh, had a good discussion on yeah what their view of the future of arguing for um liberty in the future and yeah they all, all took fairly positive optimistic views of um how we can progress how we can um you know, find like how technology can help us um, sort of uh, move, you know, beyond the state regulation and and enable us to to argue for freedom uh, in that way. And you know, very lot of a lot of positive talk about like the role of uh, the internet in, in spreading ideas. So yeah, it was really really um, a really good talk, and it was good to be in the room and have questions asked from the audience. Yep, yeah. fantastic stuff. So you went through a lot of uh, what are they called panels and stuff and presentations over the course of the conference. What was your favourite? Um, there was a number of yeah really good um, panels and a lot of like diversity of thought. One of the really interesting one was called "Leaving the Left." Um, there was uh, I think it was three ladies speaking about how 
who came from various backgrounds and saying how they left the regressive left mm-hmm. um, and now have moved to sort of you know various uh, positions. But so we had um, Bindi Cole Cocker, who um, some of the listeners might have heard her story. So she um, was came from a really uh, rough background um, and was involved in sort of like the, the art world in Australia. Um, and like she was telling the story about how she sort of got famous by being involved in this sort of social justice warrior art scene. Um, but then she had a sort of an about-face um, turn where she um, converted to Christianity and sort of embraced like a conservative worldview. So um, she sort of told the story about how um, the social impact of that, like amongst her friends, amongst the art world, where her work really dried up because of... Um, really? Yeah. So well, um, She's an apostate. She left the religion. So you know, yeah. they've got to reject her. Yeah, exactly. And, and another interesting one was from a lady who was... Uh, was is an ex-Muslim, and she was saying that um, she was like raised a Muslim in a Muslim family, and then um, she left uh, Islam and embraced this sort of radical leftism, and then sort of realised that she had traded what she defines as one cult for another cult, um, and then sort of comparing the yeah the the social impact of leaving both of those things when she realised that you know the radical left. We're not open to ideas. We're not, um, you know, what she called free thinkers. So that was really interesting to hear. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I know there was another panel which was interesting to hear, but it wasn't especially uh, good. And that's not to take away from the Freedom of Conference, but it just happened to be that there was uh, one particular member of the Labor Party who uh, didn't really seem to pick up on the right lessons to take from the last election, you were telling us. Yeah, so there was... Um uh, Sam Crosby, who was a, a candidate, Labor candidate for Reid in Sydney, and he was, I assume when they organised the conference, they assumed that he would, one, win his seat uh, and be in the parliament, and also that he'd be part of the government, uh, so part of, with under a Labor victory. So it was interesting to, um, it was good for him to, to front up to a libertarian conference, which I think um, you know, didn't have a lot of support in the room. But um yeah, I ultimately didn't really agree with his assessment of um, the election that happened and, and why Labor lost the election. He sort of um, argued that, uh, you know, the, the reason that they, they didn't win is because they didn't argue for their key policies like putting uh, solar panels on schools, which I don't, I don't think that's a That's winner. what swayed Queensland. Yeah, in my I don't think... They um, would have tipped it over the edge. That's yeah. a good um, thing to say, you know, you've got to vote for us or you won't get your solar panels on your local school. So, um, yeah, I don't think that's it. And then, um, yeah, and he brought up the issue of um, religious freedom um, and how that was uh, ultimately one that Labor had difficulty in uh, persuading uh, the electorate of. So that was interesting because his seat is an interesting one because it has a lot of affluent areas but also... Um, as you move west, it sort of moves into um, areas that were very high no voters in the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite. So, yeah, it was interesting to hear his sort of um, his take on that. So is he Labor right or Labor left? Uh, he's from Labor right. Yeah, yeah, so if you've got a Labor right guy saying we didn't exactly put our climate policies hard, hard enough, like Labor Party's in a really weird position then. Yeah, so... Um, the other issue which I disagree with him strongly on was um, talking about energy and Adani. He was uh, maintaining an anti-Adani uh, perspective, anti-nuclear energy. Um, oh, you know, yeah, sorry, Pete. Come on, mate. Didn't want to open these things up to the market, made um, 
he was saying, you know, that he doesn't think the nuclear and because uh, nuclear takes 20 years apparently to, to build, which I, I dispute as well. Um, so I don't really agree with him on energy. And uh, what struck me was that if he's coming from Labor right, you sort of wonder, is there anyone in the party room who's actually going to be um, you know, putting forward what I think was the, the disaster for the Labor Party, which was their anti-industry, anti um coal um, line which ultimately cost them an election in, in Queensland but if no one's putting forward the argument there you sort of wonder yeah, um, what's going to happen going to be top dog for a long time yeah well Scomo I think he has a, a, a real opportunity to really build uh, on this victory and and, and um, yeah Labor really need to, to get their act together um, so one of my absolute favourites, Jacinta Price, she's been on this program a couple of times. She, you, told, you said her presentation was pretty good. She, she spoke about challenges in the NT and issues for Indigenous people. How was her presentation? Yeah, so she was on a panel uh, with Amanda Stoker and Tim Wilson yep. talking about the future of the Liberal Party. Uh, and she spoke to the issues of the Liberal Party, uh, the country Liberal Party in, in the Northern Territory. Um, yeah, it was really interesting hearing about... Um, so she's in... So her seat that she was running for, which she unfortunately uh, didn't get over the line in, basically takes up all of the Northern Territory except for Darwin. So there's a lot of remote uh, areas, but obviously sort of centralised in Alice Springs. Um, so she was speaking about like the, the challenges in um, really uh, putting forward the case to a number of like Indigenous Australians um, who a lot of them really embrace the ideas of, of liberalism and like standing on your own feet um, and believe in uh, improving, um, you know, the culture and, and um, societies there. Um, but she was sort of, you know, speaking about, like, the, some of the institutional things where um, a lot of Indigenous Australians sort of just default vote Labor. There's a lot of, uh, you know, people in those areas that are sort of, you know, pu- putting forward, like, the Labor message. So it's very difficult for, for someone to come in and... Um, put forward the ideas of, of liberalism and freedom. And I think she's done a very good job and I think she's going to push on and um, try and have another crack at it by the sounds of things. Well, that was my next question because I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners would probably be interested about what she plans to do next. Did she mention what her plans were now that unfortunately she didn't get up? Uh, not specifically, but by listening to her, she seems like very committed to um, you know putting forward these ideas and, and really helping um, her people uh, in the Northern Territory. So I think that she will probably continue and, and try and, um, yeah, make head, more headway there. All right, cool. So uh, you went to a whole lot of panels. It was a really great conference. You spoke at one. What would be basically your main takeout? Like what was the big theme of the panel? What are you walking away thinking? Good question. Yeah, well, I think... Um, Thank you, Pete. <laughs> I think uh, it was really... It was, one, just really good to uh, meet a, a whole range of people from libertarian movements a fair diversity of, of opinions there you have um sort of you know more like uh libertarian and also conservatives and everything so it's really good to sort of meet people get an idea of um the different views out there and also get an idea of what other people are doing in the the liberty movement um they're the institutions they come from and the way that they're arguing for liberty and i think um yeah it's really good to to hear sort of a positive message about um how we can sort of um, expand our audience and sort of um, put forward the ideas of liberty through sort of telling the stories of of, of freedom and appealing to um, people's desire for to, to be free and to um, yeah I think that's a people's desire to be free is something that we can really um, you know take into to to expand 
our views. You've done a fantastic job, Kurt. Not only have you summarised your own presentation, you've summarised half a dozen other ones, which is always tough. Now, I want to know about the off-field side of the conferences. I know there's a lot of events and functions. What was the off-field highlight? Uh, so yeah, there was a there was a number of uh, yeah events afterwards so at night. So we had the the gala dinner, but also a really nice Sydney Harbour cruise, which was mm-hmm. uh, in time for the uh, Vivid conference, which is like in for Melbournians that's the same equivalent to our White Night, I believe. So Sydney was all lit up, the uh, the bridge was lit up, and everything. So yeah, perfect twenty five degree night. So um, yeah, it was really. Yeah, I wasn't there, so I'm really struggling with this one. Big FOMO. Uh, I messed up my flights. I thought, like, all right, I'll get all my podcast interviews done. I'll be back in Melbourne. And then found out that the Bruce Cruise was Saturday night when I was in rainy old little Melbourne, seeing all the photos from people from the conferences. <laughs> yeah, and it was, like, uh, oh, I messed this one up. <laughs> yep. No, it was really good. And then, um, yeah, coming back, getting off the flight in Melbourne, hit by the big you know, wind of cold. So, yeah. Best on ground? Best on ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll have to give that to, like, from the speaker's perspective. Uh, off field. <laughs> oh, it's off Peter field. Gregory. What do you think he means? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no, let's give who's the best speaker and who is best on ground off field? Pete tries desperately to call back some respect. <laughs> no, I'm interested in both. Um, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask for the best uh, on ground uh, in terms of the, the nightlife. Yeah. Kurt's a dad now, all right? Yeah, he needs I'm to, a those days are behind him. Come on, Kurt. Who I'm are you res- protecting? <laughs> No, no, no comment on that. Um, no, I'm a res- yeah. Um, but in terms of the conference, I think um, yeah, I don't really know who was the best, but um, yeah, the ones I really enjoyed hearing uh, Sir Roger Douglas because you know learning about um, what went on in New Zealand. I think the guys are really uh, you know worthy of our respect, and um, yeah, it was really good to hear um, what he was thinking, and he's sort of you know, still putting forward ideas for how to to improve and, and advance um, and opening up markets and. Um, smaller government and putting forward the ideas of liberty. So, yeah, I'll give uh, Sir, Rog- Sir Roger Douglas uh, best on ground. All right, the medal's in the mail to him. <laughs> All right, uh, Kurt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, mate. Okay, thank you too, Andres Guevara and Kurt Wallace for those interviews. Now, this has been a long show, but there's been a whole lot of things that have uh, you know made us laugh in the last week. Yeah, let's so start. we'll fly through them, but also you know we we want to give them the due time of day. Mm. All right, uh, so I'm going to start off with this one. So Naomi Wolf, pretty famous writer, pretty famous, uh, you know. Literary crit- like like literary person, I guess. Uh, so progressive you know, people, feminist. People know who she is, right? Yep, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ninety five percent of people. Yeah. So anyway, she's got a new book out called uh, "Outrages: Sex, Censorship, and the Criminalization of Love," and it's basically looking at the history of you know uh, gay people, other like LGBTIQ people, and uh, looking at the history and how different societies have engaged with it. And mm-hmm. it comes back to this like heartbeat through the book of, uh, I mean, I haven't read the book. It ha- is not out yet, but it does seem to be that a very important part of the book is the idea that gay people used to be executed in England. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a slight problem with this. <laughs> Sorry, she's on the BBC. Like, we'll play a clip halfway through this. I'll just like edit it in later. But basically, yep. she's being interviewed on the BBC and she's talking about some of the cases and she keeps on noting that, um, you know, people that are arrested for homosexuality, it says death recorded. Mm-hmm. Now, she takes this to mean executed. As she's later informed, death recorded actually means that they were spared. Yeah. They were spared execution. The entire basis of her book is based on a misreading of an ancient English 
uh, legal term. Death recorded. I was really surprised by this, and I, I, I looked it up. Death recorded was a category that was created in 1823 that allowed judges to abstain from pronouncing a sentence of death on any capital convict whom they considered to be a fit subject for pardon. I don't think any of the executions you've identified here actually happened. Well, that's a really important thing to investigate. What is your... What is your understanding of well, what death recorded means? I mean, that that's just savage. And the one guy she's sticking up for and like currently talking about in an interview is arrested for a sex crime with a six-year-old child. Yeah. So not exactly the kind of guy you want to be firming your cast of the mask 180 years after the fact and going, this guy should have been spared. Uh, bad look for her. Yeah, look, I mean, it was absolutely brutal. We've all had moments of that like that, not necessarily on radio. Um, what I did admire about Naomi Wolf, though, was that she has sort of come out and said, you know, this guy, this radio host, uh, you know, I thank him for his input, and it was important correction. Be that as it may, yeah. the rest of my book still is fine. Yeah. And Definitely made buy it. Yeah. Okay, and so there's a few things to discuss. Like, one, like, Pete and I pride ourselves on our ability to proofread, I would say. Like, yeah. it seems to be a bit of a contest between us and who wow, the best proofreader in the world well, is. there's no contest, but, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, how does no one check? Like, how does no one go back and read, like, I really should read up on this death-recorded business? Well, it would have had 47 diversity proofers. Yeah. But no actual historian that would say, actually, Naomi, what that means is... Yeah, that it's that they were spared. Anyway, yeah. uh, and the second part is, so, if you're the journalist and you have the, you know, the king, like, the king hit, you've got the finishing move, mm. death-recorded doesn't mean what you think it means. Well, he was nervous as well, you could tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's, what's the go on doing it live on air? Like yeah. it, it's a lot, it's a lot to do. Like it's literally like I'm gonna make you a meme for the next couple of days. Yeah. Thanks for coming all this way and well, being on look, my show. I'm know, about to destroy you. That's the game, James. Like, is that the game? I, th- I well, think yeah. it's a game, but it did get a whole lot of feedback on Twitter. Like that was a bit unprofessional. You've got to tell her off air. No, you don't. Yeah, well that was the takeaway on Twitter. Oh, I wouldn't go with that at all. I mean, this right. woman's very powerful. She writes books, you know, she's meant to be held account by journalists. Yeah. What I would say, James, though. All publicity is good publicity. I would never have heard of this book if this didn't happen. Definitely not. And that I still is true. Have absolutely no chance of buying it. But maybe at least I've heard of it. Something but you know will, about it, yeah, and exactly. that's important. So look, maybe Naomi knew exactly what she's doing. Yeah. What would your reaction be if uh, you know you've got your PhD? It's mere days away, uh, and you're being interviewed about it on radio. And the central thesis of your PhD. I'm never going to be interviewed been... about my PhD on radio, James. But, yeah, um, not a bad attitude. But uh, so basically, let's 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 role play here. You're on the BBC. You're talking about your PhD, and then I hit you with uh, all of the, your all of your findings are based on something that never happened. What is your reaction? Well, I mean, that's unsurprising. Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah, anyway. Really? Well, no, I mean, my PhD is great, but yeah. uh, look, it is... I was a bit concerned how quickly <laughs> you diminished your own titan of work for yeah. the last five years. But I wouldn't, you know, you don't publish it without getting someone to check it, I think is the point right. that we're making. Not that we we take uh, enjoyment out of other people's misfortune here I on the Young definitely do podcast, that. But a um, bit of a clang. No, I'm, definitely throwing, I'm definitely uh, throwing down a smoke bomb and running out of the studio, yeah. and then they can't prove it. Oh, so already, that's what you were I'm doing. I'm already on a plane yeah. to Tahiti. <laughs> Specifically. <laughs> All right, well, let's right. move on to the next story. Yeah, we spent a lot we gave, longer I was just saying we're going to fly through stuff. We gave that about <laughs> 10 minutes. Five five minutes and 17 seconds. Okay, so right. now what were we going to do second? The milkshakes? Uh, oh, no, no, no. It's sorry. up to you, Pete. Milkshakes is we're going to do fourth. That's, second, we're going this to This is needless babble. We've got to get through this show. You are time-wasting. Okay, let me let me put something to the listeners out there. Okay. What is the one, chain, what, one problem you have with climate change? Milkshakes, it is, no. It is because... 
Climate change protesting is too white. There's been a backlash against the Extinction Rebellion, if I wait for it, not being diverse enough. Professor Agwuglo, sorry, let me say that again. Professor Agwugo Emajulu, I've obviously got that wrong, my apologies for that, a sociology lecturer at the University of Warwick specialising in women of colour's activism in Europe, says there is a lack of representation in activism in groups such as Extinction Rebellion. Kids of colour, another group, have questioned how inclusive the protests were and the Wretched of the Earth, which is another advocacy group, have written an open letter to Extinction Rebellion asking the the group to rethink its tactics um, and saying that ethnic and minority voices were missing from the movement. So, hang on. Are you telling me that climate change is a white people thing? No way. Yeah, exactly. No way. Like, I, the second you said it, I'm like, you know what? It is <laughs> climate change protests are really white. It's the whitest thing in the world. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, uh, let me hit you with three things. Okay. All right. And you have to tell me what, what's the whitest. Okay. Climate change protests. Oh, it's up there. The unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I, uh, okay. Give me the third one. <laughs> Very popular TV show. Okay. Uh, and uh, Berets. Uh, yeah. Look, they're, they're all pretty white, but yep. climate change. Climate change protests is easily is the whitest thing in the world. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm with that. Like, it's a pretty good reason to not go to a climate change protest. And that story was from the BBC, which is, you know, could you get anything more BBC than that? No. Climate change protests aren't diverse enough. Yes, I would expect The Guardian maybe, but yep. I'll settle for the BBC. Okay. Maybe The Independent. Anyway, uh, I have got another one here. So... Uh, People with an active Twitter account might be familiar with the Krasenstein brothers. Now, these are basically professional left-wing trolls, I would say. These guys got famous off uh, that uh, that case where it was found that Donald Trump can't block people on Twitter because it's a free speech issue. Anyway, so it was like these two, a bunch of other guys, Eugene Cho or something like that, I can't remember his exact name. They're not exactly the world's leading professional uh, political thinkers, but they rocketed to fame off this. I think they had like 900,000... And the other one had 700,000 Twitter followers. And their whole thing is the second Trump tweets, they just fire off a reply disparaging him. And then everyone goes like, hey, great job, guys. But apparently it wasn't everyone going, great job, guys. They've been permanently suspended from Twitter uh, because they, let me get the wording right. So operating multiple fake accounts and purchasing account interactions (laughs) are strictly prohibited, which is what they were doing. They were buying fake accounts and then using those fake accounts to engage with their main accounts to make them look like they've got more fans than they do. When you say buy fake accounts, aren't they... Don't you, isn't it free to set up an account? It's free to set up an account, but you can pay companies that only do this. So it's not just you at your desk for eight hours oh, yeah, coming so up with different handles. So you get hundreds uh, of thousands. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the brothers denied they broke Twitter's rules, claiming they never purchased fake accounts or engaged in fake account interactions. Now, this is my favorite part. So our multiple accounts did not break any of Twitter's <laughs> terms but it's their right to ban whoever they want. Uh, what they shouldn't be doing is smearing our names over and over again by claiming that we purchased account interactions. So they're fine admitting that they definitely set up fake accounts to make them look good, but yeah. how dare you say they spent money on this? Yeah. <laughs> Which for me is far more embarrassing because you're, that means that you go, hey, I want you to know that I sat at my desk and came up with a bunch of different Twitter handles to make me seem like a good guy. Don't you ever think I try to expedite the process through payment? Yeah, that's I don't get what they're getting at with yeah. that. But I mean, look, that there you go. It's so what what is this is I mean, journalists report off Twitter like it's the real world when like stuff like this goes on all the time. Yeah. And um who knows? It's like I'm starting to come to the conclusion that maybe Twitter is a bit of a cesspit. I personally am going to miss these two because reading their replies and just people dunking on them is hilarious and always will be hilarious. And their podcast was some great listening for the two episodes I could be bothered listening to. 
And so, and so they would just read out roasts of them and not critique them. They would just read them out. We should do that. It's incredible. No, but like at least we would stand up for ourselves. We would just like read out roast after roast and then just move on. Yeah. Anyway, and they sound exactly the same, mm-hmm. which is incredible for a podcast. I mean, Pete and I do sound similar, but yeah. like these guys literally have the same voice. Well, they are brothers. Yes. They were, you know, come from the same household. Yeah. All right. Uh, that is uh, that story. So Pete, take us to another one. Okay. Well, as I sort of alluded to earlier... I've got to talk about milkshakes. So we've, we, I look, we started this not throwing milkshakes, but saying that dairy was a 2019 thing. And then subsequently, yeah, dairy's back, not as a form of uh, nutrition, but as a form of missile. As a form of political protest, we yep. saw Tommy Robinson and Nigel Farage get milkshaked, and everyone applauded. Guardian, not everyone, but a lot of people applauded. Guardian journos, MPs, you know, the powers that be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the weekend, it happened to an 81-year-old war veteran who was wearing a Brexit badge during the uh, MEP elections and was at a voting booth. And he got milkshaked, all fun and games, until something like that happens. Don McNaughton was in the armed forces. Uh, He had 22 years service. He was left uh, covered in milkshake in Aldershot. He said, I'll just read through what he said because it's pretty funny. Somebody came across the street to the polling station and he gave me the finger. He then started giving me verbal abuse and ran off. I didn't hear the abuse. (laughs) I mean, that's already funny. So I'm just like, well, I can't be here for when this old man hears what I have to say. I yeah. better create some distance. I just gave him the finger and abused him. Yeah. Uh, I didn't hear the abuse because I was laughing at him. Ten minutes later, he came back with a milkshake and he threw it over me. I again just curled up laughing. I didn't mind because it was my favourite flavour. Obviously, this fellow was just copying what happened to Nigel Farage. He was in his early 20s. It's very childish of him. If he had an argument with me, I would have been more than happy to debate with him and instead he chose to assault me. Uh, oh, the silly man hasn't put me off campaigning. Heck no, he has silly submitted. Oh. <laughs> he has Make, have this guy run for parliament. Well, to be honest, he's a lot more mature than a lot of people in the public sphere at the moment. He said, finally, he has cemented the iron will. I will I'm going to keep fighting on. All right, so I've got two things here. Yeah. One is, surely at some point after you throw a milkshake at an old man <laughs> who's currently laughing at you, mm. Surely there's got to be some level of maybe I'm the bad guy here. Maybe I have to stop being like how I am. Yeah, maybe I need to reflect. I'm getting laughed at by the 80-year-old who I just chucked a milkshake on. Like, support bre- like support remain all you want. I don't care. But yeah. at least I can start throwing milkshakes. Like, you are not the person you think you are. You- You're not the brave campaigner for good and justice. And the second part is, uh, what flavour of milkshake would you want to be hit with? Uh... I, I think this was raspberry, and I think I'd probably go for a raspberry. Unless strawberry does seem to be like, oh, maybe it's vanilla. Because, like, I'm, favorite flavor being caramel, but it'd be too sticky. So I like to smell like caramel, but it would be hard to get out. You've thought about this. Vanilla milkshake, probably the best. Strawberry milkshake, the stain is hard to, like, it's pink. It's going gonna, gonna to stain. Yeah, well, this was pink. You could you could see the photos of this bloke. Uh, is it? Is there, are there milkshakes with booze in them? Like, is that? <laughs> it always comes back to booze. But I mean, I mean, if you're going to get milkshake. Yeah, might as well. Get some alcohol out yeah, of it. The fumes. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, surely there would that. be a boozy milkshake. Yeah, if not, someone, yeah, someone somewhere. Like Bailey's or something like that. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, last but certainly not least. So uh, Peter Van Onselen, who is the political guy over at Channel 10 and a contributing editor to The Australian, one of uh, the world's great Twitter followers, just uh, a guy that continually bites the trash, continually gets into Twitter stouches. And he's taken, he's taken a hit in this election. So everyone has eventually retweeted at least once the, uh, Peter Van Onselen, the quote, there's no way that Scott Morrison can win it and I'm happy to have that replayed time and time again to my shame if he does win it. So, I mean, literally calling out that it's going to happen, it's going to eventually happen. But anyway, it's had a new one uh, yesterday. So 
Peter Van Onselen has waited. I didn't think Australians would have elected uh, Rudd PM. Sick. Like, that's what he said. I didn't think Australians would elected Rudd Rud PM. Didn't think his party would dump him first term. Didn't think Abbott would become PM. Didn't think his party would dump him first term. Didn't think Rudd or Turnbull would make comebacks. Didn't think Morrison would win. <laughs> Don't tweet that. <laughs> if yeah. you're a political like political guy for Channel 10 and a contributing editor to The Australian, don't wave the flag of how bad you are at predicting things. you got to try and hide that you stuff. you got to bury that. Don't comp- Yeah, I completely get it wrong all the time. Yeah. I think it's And funny. then he's got the emoji of someone going like shrugging, just like, well, what you going to do? <laughs> That's right. Something better? <laughs> your, your job? <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, look, like no one got it right. Yeah. Let's be honest, but everyone got it wrong. But I'm, he, like, I'm okay with someone saying, I don't think Morrison will win. No one thought Morrison would win. I mean, it's pretty funny when you start going, like, play this back to me. Play this back to me if he does. I yeah. mean, that's going, okay, fine. But, like, to go on the record with all of these wrong predictions, just so every one of your haters has got it stored in a very easy to find location for, to use it against you. Yeah. Pretty funny stuff. Absolutely. Making it absolutely clear for everyone. All right. Uh, cool. That is it for the show this week. So thanks again to Anders Guevara and Kurt Wallace for those interviews. Uh, make sure you like you know try and support Sadiqa if you can. Uh, they've got their Instagram accounts. They've got their Facebook accounts as well. You can go do uh, follow what they're doing, which is truly magnificent work. Uh, you can also follow Kurt Wallace at the IPA as well. Uh, make sure you're subscribing to this podcast. Make sure you're subscribing to Looking Forward as well. Uh, you know whatever podcast platform you choose. Make sure you're getting the word out as uh, on top of that to friends and family who also listen to podcasts. And if you are not a member of the IPA already, go to ipa.org.au slash join. You can join uh, and become part of Australia's leading voice for freedom. And make sure if you're already a member, there's also options to donate as well if you want to support the work of the Institute of Public Affairs. All right. Uh, any final words, Pete? Any final thoughts? Oh, just have a great week, everyone. All right, yeah. That's, that's a good and positive message. See you guys next week. Say up. You know what you